0: Today for our scripture readings, we have three passages. We'll be looking through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6, and then I'll jump to verses 12 through 16, then we'll look at a passage from Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6. Just hit me, there's a lot of sixes there today, but I'm not superstitious, and there's four sixes, not three, so we're good. All right. Um Hear God's word coming from Deuteronomy chapter five, verse six. "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, moving to verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or your sojourner who's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that, in your, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And for our New Testament reading today, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Thus, further reading God's holy word, let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, you would open my mouth and open our ears to receive your word, that it might be believed, that it might be obeyed. And that you might be glorified through our words and our works. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today, um, I've never been much of a a fan of sermon titles. Sometimes, in in my view, and I'm not condemning those who do do this, but sometimes, in my view, sermon titles might tell you more about what the preacher wants and less about what the text wants. Um, But today is a uh, topical sermon. And therefore, I'm going to give you a, uh, a title. And so here's the title. That it may go well with you in the land. That's what we're going to focus on. And uh, as I was wrapping this up last night, I realized I probably bit off more than I could chew. So um, giving you a title might help focus your thoughts. That it may go well with you in the land. Well, our first two passages that we saw today we're from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of Moses. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, okay? So it's basically a reprint of the law of God that was received in Exodus. It's a reprint of the law received at Sinai. And it's specifically for this previously wilderness generation, but now coming to be this generation that is moving into Canaan, okay? Um, it is how, how are we going to consider the law today, okay? Now, before Joshua and the children of Israel, a pilgrim people, go to take possession of their divinely appointed inheritance, they needed a reminder of two things. They needed to look forwards to their future, but also a look backwards to their past. So, Joshua is giving them, or Moses is giving them, before they enter the promised land, a reminder of their past and a look towards their future. Look at their past first. The past we can see by 5.6 in Deuteronomy. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this redemptive fact is also the reason given for Sabbath observance. You observe the Sabbath, at least in Deuteronomy 5, because of the redemptive act. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? Um, that's the reason given for Sabbath observance. It's by the mighty hand, an outstretched arm, that God supernaturally did for Israel, which they couldn't do for themselves. Take a moment and think about this, how supernaturalism is writ large throughout that whole experience uh, from the before the Exodus all the way through the wilderness. So for example, it was God who visited the 10 plagues upon the Egyptians erupting in the Exodus. It was the Ruach Elohim or the Spirit of God who separated the waters of the Red Sea. It was God who led them by pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. It was God who provided water from a rock. It's God who sent manna for bread and quail for meat. In short, we see that this is the hand of God acting in the lives of his people. This is supernaturalism writ large. Now, we see them go from an enslaved people to inheritors of a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is not the result of careful planning by a skilled general and faithful troops. This is the almighty hand of God. Now, the truth of the matter is, Scripture tells us that Israel, amongst all peoples, was perhaps the most pathetic. They were very weak, okay? And God, choosing to shame the wise and shame the strong, works through the meek and the mild. Israel needed to be reminded of this past. The central Old Testament event, the exodus, was the gracious work of God on their behalf. Yet this reminder of their past salvation was not the only glance provided for in Deuteronomy. Moses wants them to look forward. They needed a reminder of what the future holds for them. Blessings, if they're faithful to the terms of the covenant, and curses, if they become covenant breakers. This two-edged sword of the Mosaic Covenant is seen for us in chapter 5, verse 16. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Six three speaks similarly. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of our fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now this command to be careful to do the commandments that it may go well with you in the land, it's basically a restatement of the Adamic covenant of works. There's this works principle involved there. Okay? Leviticus 18.5 states it this way, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live. I am the Lord. Now it's helpful to remind ourselves that neither Adam nor Israel merited anything in their creation as a child of God. But both were expected to keep the terms of the covenant and receive blessings for obedience or pain of death for disobedience. Adam's promise, of course, was implied heavenly life upon perfect and perpetual obedience. His explicit curse was death, should he be found wanting, and we all know how that worked out. Look no further than your own bodies. In this own congregation, this, our own congregation, we see birth defects poor eyesight, joint failure, and, of course, death. The reality of the fall affects us all. Adam failed. Yes, as the New England primer taught early American colonists, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Now, Israel's promise was retaining their gracious inheritance of a land flowing with milk and honey, and notice that it's the polar opposite of what they experienced in Egypt. In Egypt, they experience backbreaking labor in service to a master where they wouldn't receive the fruit of their labors. But they're entering into a land where they receive food, they receive the goodness of the land, apart from their labors. It's a type of heaven in that it's a land free from the most immediate effects of the curse. Labor by the sweat of your brow for survival in Canaan for the Israelites in that time is replaced by plentiful provisions and those provided by the labor of another. However, Israel's curse for not keeping the covenant, for failing to worship the one true God as he required, for, failing to take, for, for taking his name in vain, for breaking Sabbath, for disobeying their parents, for hating their fellow man, was to receive the chastisement of God by the curses of Deuteronomy 28. And I'll just give you a sampling of Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 through 19. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all its commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Beloved, it is for this reason that the command for covenant nurture is so important. Verse 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now think about that. Moses had lived, wandered with the wilderness generation for 40 years, and he's seen. He's seen these people, and he's seen their lives, and he's seen how they've responded to God's mighty acts in history. His generation experienced all of these miracles of the Exodus only for most of them to turn back to their pagan roots, okay? Only for most of them to chuck the faith. Consider, these people saw Moses come down off Sinai with the thundering, the lightning clashes, the sound of the trumpet and the smoking. These are the same people who promised, we will do everything the Lord has said, that we will obey. But the fact of the matter is, only a remnant is saved. He witnessed the wilderness generation die in unbelief, unable to enter the promised land. Moses knew far too well the deceitfulness of sin, and so he's calling upon Israel to combat it by becoming saturated in the word of the Lord. Turn with me now to Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Apostle Paul cites this fifth commandment with its promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land, but... I submit to you that Paul doesn't have in mind here only geographical Canaan or only a long life in this present evil age. Limiting ourselves just to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 23, we're going to see that Paul, for Paul, the land promise in the Old Covenant, it gives way to the restoration of the entire cosmos, consisting of a sanctified heaven and earth that are united and that God dwells in their midst. That is, the type or picture of heaven provided for in the land flowing with milk and honey, a land where you enjoy the benefits of your labor apart from your labor, but rather the labor of another, comes to its reality in Christ. The fullness, uh, Ephesians 1.10 says, that uh, Christ, in Christ the fullness of time, he's uniting all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. So Paul has a, a broader view of The blessings of the land Christ destroys the curse And he prepares a place for us In his father's many rooms Not symbolically Not temporally But really and eternally Now does this include the promised land? And you know this is a, a Within Christianity that's there's Different views on where does Israel fall In these things? And Some Christians tend to be very Israel centric in terms of the way they interpret the Bible Um, Personally, I think we need to read the scriptures uh, Christocentric that is focused on Christ as the true Israel But does this include the promised land? well, of course But we're not to read the Bible in such a way that it focuses only on that when the triune God resurrected Christ's dead carcass and seated him at the Father's right hand in heavenly places giving him power and authority, dominion and rule, both in this age and the age to come. He's uniting heaven and earth and giving all who believe something much greater than Canaan. Your hope is not for a chunk of land in Palestine. Your hope is in heaven. And when we say heaven, we do not mean an immaterial place, but we mean that final reality where heaven and earth shall become one, where we shall be his people, he shall be our God in a final sense. Now, Paul also doesn't mean when he speaks of long life, he's not talking about life as we experience it, as our earth travels around the sun. No, Paul is speaking of something much deeper. Now, certainly, uh, it is useful to acknowledge that the Proverbs principle is true. That is, if you obey God's law, if you're faithful in keeping the commandments, things will go well for you, right? Let me give some practical examples. If you spend your life not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, you really have a better chance of not getting killed by a jealous husband or by revenge for stealing someone's property. That is pretty apparent, right? So certainly there's some general equity. There's a, hey, this is true, right? This, in God's created order, you follow his law, things will work well. However, uh, if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes or Job, um, it, it's worthwhile to, keep, worthwhile to keep in mind that we know people who live their lives actively keeping God's commandments by protecting life, by laboring after purity in the marriage covenant and elsewhere. People who give to others. These people often suffer worse fates than people who break all of God's commandments. So there's not this one-to-one correlation between obedience and blessing. The world is a wacky place, and sometimes the righteous get what the unrighteous deserve, and the unrighteous get what the righteous deserve. But there's another age, an age where all of it will make sense. But Paul here... This really needs a shelf. Um, Paul here really envisions a much better life. He envisions an eternal, heavenly life. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 reads, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Jesus Paul envisions a life that is Not something that's going to be tainted not something that's going to be destroyed Not something that's going to be affected by your bad eyesight by your joints going bad Paul envisions life in the fullest Now, through various passages today, we've looked at uh, both the law and the gospel. In general, uh, both Lutheran and Reformed theologians have recognized that the law shows us God's righteous requirements and tells us how Adam, Israel, and we have failed to meet them. The law restrains evil by threat of consequences, which are evident to all. But it also informs us how we can show gratitude To our God for his grace given. Now, that grace given, of course, is the gospel. And the gospel tells us how Christ met the requirements of God's holy law and accomplished heaven for Adam's race by his life and death as our substitute in the sinner's place. As you wholeheartedly rest in Christ for satisfying God's commandments and rejoice in him for taking the penalty of your sins, you receive heaven, the presence of God where he rejoices over you. But how does this law and gospel today inform us as individuals, as families, and as a congregation as we seek to have it go well with us and that we may live long in the land? For Moses, Joshua, and Israel, part of the impetus for covenant nurture in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, that's the passage, teaching the law to your children when sitting, walking, lying down, and rising for binding it on your hand and your head and writing it on your doorposts. The the whole impetus for that, it did have this concern to render sufficient national obedience for Israel to stay in the land. But we've seen that for Paul, this typological promise, this picture of heaven in the old covenant, it's no longer in effect as the reality has come in Jesus. Now, this might make people say, well, this... This charge of Moses to be faithful in teaching your children the covenant. Well, it doesn't apply because the new covenants come Beloved, I submit no Rather than diminish Moses admonition to teach the existing revelation of God everywhere at all times The fullness of the new covenant shows us how much more important Deuteronomy 6 6 through 7 is the Mosaic Covenant had a conditional element wherein the keeping of the commandments kept Israel in God's favor and guaranteed their continued enjoyment of the land. That is, as far as Old Testament Israel as a nation is concerned, they got into the land by grace, but they kept it by works. As far as individual Israelites were concerned, of course, they're saved by grace through faith just like all of us. But Old Testament Israel as a nation got in by grace, but they kept it by works. In the new covenant, that conditional element is removed. The new heavens and the new earth are a gift of grace, and your continuance in them is a gift of grace as well. As a matter of fact, in the new heavens and the new earth, you will be rendered incapable of sinning. Your greatest joy to worship God as he ought to be worshipped will be a reality. It won't be fond thinking. It won't be a hope. It will be you, that you will love to praise God as he ought to be praised due to his being power and glory. When we talk about the new covenant, you get in by grace and you stay in by grace. So regardless of which covenant we're talking about, I want you to know that the teaching of God's word in all times and in all places by families is a means of eternal life as it is blessed by the spirit who gives life. Now, this is a Presbyterian church. We confess what we call Calvinistic doctrine. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that salvation is of the Lord. And sometimes that makes people wonder, well, if salvation is the gracious act of a sovereign God and no one can thwart his will, what does this have to do with me? God will save who God will save. Why should I get in the way? Now, I appreciate your faith in God's Power and ability, but don't you know that God uses means to accomplish His will? And we'll see today the primary means that God uses to preach faith in the heart of the elect is the preached word. It's the word as it's read, the word as it's shared in the family. That is a huge means of grace. Romans 10 11 through 14 says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. See then how Paul associates faith with hearing, and hearing with preaching by preachers. Now this is one that's often confounded me, uh, that God would entrust the supernatural message of the gospel to be preached by fallen, faltering lips. But nonetheless, that is part of his plan. Through the foolishness of preaching, great things would be accomplished. Now, this whole idea of God using means to accomplish His supernatural ends, uh, ordinary means to accomplish His supernatural ends, it's picked up by Luther. Luther, uh, commenting in the larger catechism, he states, For even though otherwise we experience much good from men, still whatever we receive by His command or arrangement is all received from God. For our parents... And all rulers and everyone besides with respect to his neighbor have received from God the command that they should do good to us, all manner of good, so that we receive those blessings not from them, but through them from God. And here's a good summary. For creatures are not only the hands, uh, for creatures are only the hands, channels, and means whereby God gives all things. Okay, others might ask, okay, uh, God uses means to preach faith into the heart of the elect. He makes the apostles and prophets, and he makes apostles and teachers and preachers, fishers of men. Isn't that just the job of the preacher? Isn't that just the job of the church? Now, certainly, I hope you would have a high view of the church, and that is the expectation of the preacher, okay? We see that Paul coaches Timothy. Timothy, of course, is a first-generation General office holding, uh, you know, pastor. Uh, he's you know not an apostle and not part of that age necessarily. Timothy is encouraged by Paul to be ready in season and out of season to preach the word in Second Timothy two four. And Paul models preaching the whole counsel of God to all peoples at all times, and that is the minister's task for sure. But I want us to take note of Timothy for a moment as we consider this case study in. Uh, the minister of the word. And we're going to look at the minister of the word's mama, okay? And his grandma. Notice that this ministry of the word from the ordained and called minister, Timothy in this case, is not the only factor in bringing people to faith. A significant factor in Timothy's own faith is God's faithfulness to his family through ordinary means, like teaching the Bible at your mother's lap. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1:5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, Paul directs, As for you, continue in what you've learned and what you firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which you are which are able to make you wise. For salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 16 verse 1 tells us that Timothy's mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. We see in Timothy's mother and grandmother an example of faithfulness to Moses command to teach the children of the covenant. The task of instructing our covenant youth, our children, is not only the church's. It belongs to the family. There's a long history in the Christian church of thinking the family, thinking of the family as a little church. Now, granted, uh, the family as a little church is not charged with the task of administering the Lord's Supper. They're not charged with the task of baptizing people. But nonetheless, basic Christian worship can and should happen in the family. To read God's Word daily is a highly useful way to confess that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. When Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ as the second Adam, the fulfillment of Israel's hopes, Lois, Eunice, and Timothy believed. And they believed because they had the word of God dwelling in them richly. When the Spirit blesses the word, fruit bears forth. In other words, teaching the Bible and sharing your faith with your family is a general office of believer task, okay? That is something every Christian can participate in. All members in a Christian family are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and they're called to follow the created order. Christ's resurrection from the dead affirms that created order. So husbands, wives, and children jointly are to submit to the lordship of Christ. Ephesians 5.22 through 6.4 spells this out. And I'll be dancing around there pretty quickly. Uh, Ephesians 5.22 through 6.4. Uh, just just a summary of the passage, but for husbands. It tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And in 6.4 it says they're not to provoke their children to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so we see from this passage that this gives husbands the primary task of covenant nurture. Now, notice this isn't the stereotype of the patriarchy here. This isn't a blank check for the man to be an overwhelming bully and jerk, okay? It tells us that he's to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He is to sacrifice himself for her. He is to be a servant leader. He is to look to his Savior, the Lord Jesus. And, you know, think back to Pastor Tim's last sermon on uh, Philippians 2, who did not look at the fact that he is deity as some windfall to be taken advantage of, but he, sends, he, he comes down as a suffering servant to look after the needs of others. That is your call, man. That is your call. Sacrificial, obedient love like Christ. Husbands, your headship is not license for tyranny. By your example, your wife and kids should see Christ in you, the hope of glory. And by being like that, they should long to be like Christ. Secondly, we see that wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Now, this is a hard one to swallow in American culture. A couple points need to be heard. First, the passage does not say... All women ought to submit to all men It doesn't say Wives, all wives Submit to all husbands Uh, But it does say Wives submit to your own husbands Okay Now this is easy If the husband is loving his wife As Christ loves the church But ladies I have some bad news for you Uh, Your husband ain't Jesus Jesus and he's going to fail in that just as surely as you're going to fail submitting to him as you second guess him he, he's, he's not going to live up to the deal and neither are you perfectly but this is showing us what Christ and his church is like now some might wonder well okay I get that this is the created order and I'm supposed to do this um, what if my husband's a pagan Or what if my husband professes faith in Christ, but has chucked the faith, okay? Peter's suggestion there appears to be this. Even if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won by the conduct of their wives. So, you know, God's law is ultimate, and it always is, and it calls us to obedience and where we fail to repentance. So what we see in this passage, whether husband or wife, the goal is to be a showcase of God's grace to your spouse and your children and to a watching world. Lastly, we see in this passage in Ephesians 5 and 6, the command for children to obey their parents. Now, children are expected to obey their parents, but notice the qualifier in the passage. It's in the Lord, right? Again, this is not a blanket command for blind obeisance. It's a call to respond to the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we're not going to get through all this. But, um, you know, what I want to focus on today is more of the parenting aspect of this equation. Certainly, kids, you need to obey your parents. Sometimes will they be foolish? Sure. Sometimes will they be short-sighted? Yes but I can guarantee you in most cases they love you and they want the best for you. And as you live a little longer, as Pastor Tim often says, the older you get, the wiser your dad becomes. It's not because dad gets any wiser, it's because finally you start to see the truth. But today we're gonna focus on as parents, uh, how how do we participate in enabling our kids to to obey? Okay? So, today we're looking at the parenting role more than the child's response. Perhaps a useful paraphrase for this passage in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 would be like this, kids, believe your Christian parents as they bring you up in the nurture and the admonition of the gospel of our Lord, because only through the gospel may one receive eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. This has already gotten longer than I expected. But I want you to know that God uses your labors in covenant nurture, in raising your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and he uses these, when he sees fit, to eternal ends. He blesses the ordinary means of grace. He blesses the word when it's preached. He blesses the sacraments when they're uh, administered. Okay, And he also blesses us as we pray To this end, family worship is of much use in instructing your family in righteousness. Know that regardless of your situation, this is something you can do. I know people get worried about this, like I didn't go to seminary, I didn't go to Bible school, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. Beloved, if you want to learn Taekwondo, you start with some basic steps and you practice them and you get better and you move on. It's like anything. Now, of course, it's not like anything because this is the means that God blesses us with the knowledge of Christ. But on the other hand, as you put yourself to reading God's word, okay, sometimes you're not going to understand it. Sometimes I don't understand it, okay? Uh, you don't have to understand everything you read. You have to bring yourself and submit yourself to the lordship of King Jesus and see what he has to say for you every day, Okay? Now, there are some helps. If you get lost, hey, read the Lord's Prayer with your family. Read the Apostles' Creed. Read the Ten Commandments, okay? These are very simple ways in which you can build on uh, family worship. And as you do this, your knowledge and love for the Lord Jesus Christ and His church will grow, and you'll get better at it, okay? But the issue here is God uses His Word to preach faith into the elect. And so get your thoughts off of how well you do your devotions. Focus on God and His Word. Also know that God is pleased to bless the labors of parents in broken situations. I just, we just looked at Timothy, right? Timothy comes from a context where his father is a Greek and his mother is a Jew. We find out in the book of Acts that You know, hey, Timothy, he's not circumcised until they go on the mission field amongst when there's Jews around. Why is that? Well, he was never circumcised. But nonetheless, Eunice, his grandmother, and Lois, his mother forgive me if I got those backwards. Uh, Yeah, I got those backwards. Um, His mom and grandma, from the earliest days, are reading him the word. Okay? They're catechizing him, they're instructing him in the ways of the Lord. And this is interesting to consider, since his father is an unbeliever, it's almost as though there wasn't a man in that household at all, okay? Concerning the things of the Lord, there was not. As a matter of fact, it might be worse than a single mother situation because Timothy had to deal with the nagging, you don't believe that God made all things of nothing, right? Okay. So be encouraged, regardless of your family situation, God's word can be taught by you. You are fit by that for this. Okay? Another thing. Uphold your baptismal vows. When we see children come forward and be baptized, folks always promise that they will pray with and for their children. Okay? Pray with your kids. Model for them. How do you pray to God? How do you confess your sins? How do you show that you look forward to the life everlasting and the world to come? Mo- that's what you're doing here. You're modeling worship for your kids. Okay? Last, bring your kids to public worship. This is of much, instru- much use in uh, instruction in righteousness. The Reformers would say things like, uh, the preached word is the word of God. And that's why in our tradition we've had such a high standard for our preachers, right? The expectation is you need to be well-educated in Greek and Hebrew and, you know, have some confessional standards to keep you on the rails Um, that's why we have such high standards because we believe that when God's word is faithfully exposited talked about taught explained unpacked that that is the word of God for his people that's not magnifying the preacher it's magnifying the word and where the preacher fails to magnify the word shame on him shame on me if that's what I do So bring your kids to public worship. It's here where Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified and called to be believed on and obeyed. It's there where the gospel is put in picture form in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. Therefore, in their earliest days, this is where your children need to be. In public worship on the Lord's day, train them that there is a time and there is a place where they need to be able to sit still and be quiet and receptive to God's word. Now, as an aside, some of you know that I used to teach kids. And I'm happy to say I don't do that anymore, young kids. Um, But for the ability for a child to know there's a time and a place that you need to be able to focus is a huge common grace blessing to their education. Now, guys, I, I get it. Kids are different. Families are different. There's lots of different things. But when we model for our kids how to worship, There's some useful tips that I would suggest. Hey, we have a, in our congregation, we read the uh, confession of sin, and then we have a silent time. That is a good time to model for your child quietly, not that I can hear, but so that your kid can hear, whisper in their ears, model how to confess your sins, okay? And I'll leave it up to you how detailed you wanna get, But, um, you know, you're modeling that you're coming before God, and God exists in a way for us as we come to Him in Christ that He forgives all of our sins, and He grants us heaven, and He considers us His children, and He loves us. And they need to see that, okay? Model for them how to worship. Model for them how to conduct yourself during worship. Explain to them what we're doing. Now, undoubtedly, there will be difficulties. Kids are a bit noisy by nature. And different kids have different temperaments. Try to keep your thoughts focused on the big picture. What you're doing here today is participating in your future reality. You're glorifying God and enjoying Him forever by singing praises to your triune God. By reflecting His glory in your words and your works. And so, yeah, there will be difficult days, okay? Some days you might need to take your child outside and clarify things for them. Hey, this is public worship at this time I need you to sit down And that's the expectation and encourage them Okay Um, Sometimes you might need to take them back in the cry room Okay, but always And with any discipline with your kids You're always explaining the why The what and the how But specifically in public worship Why are we here? What are we doing? How do we do this? We're here because God has called us And he loves us and he's preparing us an eternal existence well to that end be patient and be persistent and don't assume that because your kid is noisy on a particular day that the whole congregation is judging you and if they are so what okay now common courtesy and kindness consider those things of course but you are training your children how to become worshipers right you're training your children how to worship the triune god Now, it's worth it that we know that God works through his word and sacrament. Now, is this a guarantee for your child that they're going to embrace Christ? No. But what it does do is it puts them in the atmosphere where Christ is preached, known, loved, and I promise you, with the exception of very few circumstances, uh, God works through his word and through his spirit, okay? Can God automatically zap people and make them a believer and they've never heard the gospel anywhere? Sure. Does he? Not ordinarily. Saturate your kids in Scripture and trust God. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks uh, for your word, and we know that the promise that uh, things would go well with us in the land, that it's fulfilled in Christ Jesus the one who gives us a land, not in Canaan, but the new heavens and the new earth, a recreated cosmos, and you recreate us, and you make us willing and able to worship you in ways that are fitting eternally. We look forward to that eternal kingdom, and we pray, Father, that you would make us lights, lamps, lanterns, reflective mirrors of that place, so that our friends and neighbors might see who Jesus is and long to know him. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would bless us as we share our word, share your word, whether it be in our families, our neighborhoods, or our churches. Uh, Be with our pastor now as he's away and uh, give him rest that uh, he might fill this pulpit again soon. Lord, we also think about uh, the offering. We pray that this money would be used to bless the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, and the discipleship of Las Vegas and the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.